so today's Bible study is one I think that is um, uh, pertinent in the body of Christ. This is part of a, a series of lessons that I teach on healing, uh, and this is actually the part three of the series. Uh, the first two deal with uh, different aspects of physical healing. The first one was called um, Be Healed, the Case for Healing, in which I, I show the, the biblical case for why uh, we have a grounds for healing, for us understanding that it's God's will for us to be healed. And in, this, in part two of the series, I talk about dealing with what's called the rebuttal, talking about the arguments against healing and answering those questions. In this part three, I'm not going to deal with physical healing, but I want to deal with more so the emotional the mental and the psychological healing and the spiritual healing. And this Bible study is called Healed, But Are You Whole? And we will be looking at Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, and talking about uh, how, to, how to get over traumas, how to get over past traumas, past hurts, things that were traumatic that have damaged you, that have affected you even into your adulthood, even from things from your childhood, all those traumas, those hurts, those pains, those those different traumatic experiences that we carry with us, how do we overcome some of those things uh, as we go on our walk with God? And we're going to talk about not only just being healed of a trauma, but becoming whole from it. And uh, I believe this is going to be a tremendous blessing to those of you that are dealing with trauma. I'm going to give some, some spiritual principles that will help you and enable you to overcome some of those things today. So without further ado, let's uh, take a look at Luke chapter 17. Verses 11 through 19. This is a, a pretty famous story uh, in the Gospels where Jesus heals 10 lepers uh, outside of a, a small village in Samaria. This is where we find our story here in Luke 17, verse 11 through 19. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him 10 men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger." Verse 19 is one I want to focus on. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. So we see in, in this text there are two terms here that initially all ten lepers were healed. But Jesus gives a, a different uh, designation to this leper or this former leper, this Samaritan, that returned to give thanks unto Jesus. And he said that thy faith hath made thee whole. And we're going to dissect the differences between those two terms later on in the lesson, but I want to talk about dealing with traumas, dealing with hurts, dealing with scars. Uh, from a physical standpoint, we talk about scars, that a, uh, or if you have a laceration on your skin or so, some sort of injury or a wound, a scar is defined as a mark left on the skin by a cut or burn that has healed. A lasting after effect of trouble, especially a lasting psychological injury resulting from suffering or trauma. A third definition is any blemish remaining as a trace of or resulting from injury or use. All of us have scars. I'm sure all of us growing up as children that we, we played around, we did foolish things, and we, we scuffed up our knees, we scraped ourselves, cut ourselves, and those wounds they have healed. If you have a scar, you can touch the wound and touching it doesn't hurt. Um, you know, you know, putting your, your uh, having physical contact with that particular place where you're injured does not cause current pain anymore because the wound is healed. However, there is some sort of after effect from that wound. There is evidence of that damage actually transpiring and you can see that in the skin. There's a mark that is there from the wound. So even though it's not necessarily causing immediate injury, there still is an effect from that injury that occurred from the past. Ooh, this thing messed up. Here we go. So a good example of this is looking at slavery. And here I have a, 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 an image of a former slave. On April 9th in 1865, the Civil War ended. That year, slavery was abolished through the 13th Amendment. All the slaves were now free from their bondage, but they still had both physical and psychological damage from their enslavement. The cause of their bondage was gone, but the damaging effects of it were not. 
So even though they are now free, they're they're freemen, they are no longer in bondage, no longer enslaved. The, the, the damage, the effects of that enslavement still lingered with them, psychologically and physically, as you can see in the photo, that he still had scars that was on his back that would live with him till, till he died. And the psychological trauma, because they were conditioned to operate as being dependent on a master. And even though that um, black people and people of color were liberated in 1865 from slavery, they didn't fully start getting some of the rights of, of citizenship until a hundred years later during the civil rights movement under Dr. Martin Luther King. It took a hundred years before they, they uh, through fighting through the civil rights movement, before they started to get some sort of true rights and recognition and elevation from being just second class citizens. And that all happened because of the conditioning of enslavement. They, they, the, uh, the cause has been eliminated, but some of the effects are still there. So the cause versus the effect. In a similar sense, many believers are in this exact state. God has delivered you or delivered them from the cause of their bondage, which is sin, but there are still scars and damage from that enslavement. The, the cause has been dealt with, but what about the effect? Romans 8 chapter 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free or made me free from the law of sin and death. God has set you free from your sin, but because of the traumas, there are still sometimes some scars that are there that linger on even though we have been born again and been made new. And one of the reasons why that is the case is because that salvation is in three stages. That because we're a three-part being, we are spirit, soul, and we are body. When we are saved, the very first thing that gets saved is our spirit, the eternal real you, the eternal part of you that is like God. The next part that's in the process of being saved is the soul, which is also the mind, which has to be renewed and transformed by the word of God. The third and the last thing that will, that will be saved is the body in the rapture. When this mortal shall put on immortality, this corruptible shall put on, um, shall put on incorruption and will have a body like Jesus Christ that is free from the physical laws of age and decay. That we're waiting on. So the thing is, because even though spiritually you are saved, your spirit is just like Jesus Christ as I taught on Sunday in, in the teaching of the new man, your mind is still in the process of being saved. You still have that stinking thinking. You still have that bad programming from before you were saved. And also, you still have some of the physical and just natural issues you had before you were saved. You still have bills to pay. You still have the, the effects and the consequences of the choices that you made before you were saved. Let's just for an example, let's say you're a heavy smoker before you got born again. Alright? You still have to deal with the physical effects of living a life of smoking. Uh, not to say that God can't heal you, of course, he, he, he wants to and I believe He will if you put your faith in, but you still have to deal with that. Or let's say that you have a criminal past. Let's say that you were uh, did all sorts of deviant things and broke the law. And even though in God's eyes your record is clean in the laws of the state, you still have a criminal record. It's still difficult for you to find a job or to really acclimate to society. So those things are still there. The effects of your choices of the bondage are still there and we still have to deal with those things. So even though the cause has been dealt with, the effect is still there. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty, where Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The Bible admonishes us not to slide back into that bondage just because we're still dealing with some of the lingering effects of the bondage. It says to stand fast therefore in the liberty, wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of of bondage. This particular passage was the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatian church, and the Galatian church was being proselytized by Judaizers, meaning people that were still believing that in order to be saved, you had to follow all of the laws of Moses. And the Galatian church began to backslide into the, into the, back into the laws of Moses, the Old Testament law, and Paul had to write his epistle to them to admonish them, no, don't go back to that, because in the law of Moses, there's bondage, you're under works, while under the, under the new covenant, you're under grace, and you're saved by faith. Don't go back to that. Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, a good example of this is someone who has been traumatized and even though they've been free, been delivered from that, that initial trauma, the effects are there and they're still acting as if they're still in the trauma, is looking at the children of Israel. The effects of bondage. Here is a nation that had been enslaved for hundreds of years, for some three, four hundred years, they were in bondage under the Egyptian regime. 
And now they've been set free through, some, through miraculous events that were set forward by God. And they are now trying to adjust to this new freedom and entering into a promise that God has given unto them. So the children of Israel, as I said before, have been delivered from slavery, yet for many years afterwards, they kept behaving like slaves who loved their captivity. Uh, they had been so scarred by their enslavement that it was sabotaging their freedom. They are free, but because of the trauma, they were unable to truly operate and to appreciate the freedom that had been afforded to them by God. Uh, Exodus chapter 16, I'm going to read this in the NLT translation to tr- really make this clear as to what they're saying here. So in Exodus 15, uh, they are singing the song of Moses. Uh, they have just been delivered from the bondage of the, children, of, of, of the Egyptians and God has just killed Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And they just had this wonderful worship experience, praising God for being delivered. Uh, Moses sings a song, Miriam gets her timbrel, and they're dancing, and they're praising God. The very next chapter, look what happens here in Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin, uh, uh, between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. So now they're complaining. The honeymoon's over. You know, God delivered us. We love God. Everything's wonderful. We're free. The honeymoon has ended and now they're complaining. Verse 3. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. They, there we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. They were longing to go back under the taskmaster's. Uh, that they were trying to get free of, off of the whip and off of all the injustices that they were they were dealing with, they are now complaining that it would have been better if God had just killed us and left us back in Egypt because they had been so conditioned to follow that bondage, to follow their taskmasters. So now the question is then, how do we get rid of these scars and the effects of, of, of the damage caused by sin or the damage by a painful experience. It could be perhaps you were abused. Maybe you were molested. Maybe you were you were raped or isolated or you were made fun of. You were mistreated. Uh, you, were, you experienced a great injustice. How do you deal with these lingering effects? You're born again. You've given your life to Christ. But these issues keep coming up in your walk with God. And they're sabotaging your freedom. You're acting as if you're still in that particular trauma. How do we deal with that? So now I want to look at what God did for the children of Israel after He had gotten them out of that bondage. Well, actually, we'll first start with what, what God did while they were still in the bondage, what He did to get them out of it. All the miracles that God did and how audacious and just insulting it was for the children of Israel to behave this way and to complain and to murmur in the way that they were. Let's just look at a, a, kind of a recap of the miracles that God did during the Exodus. So first, He turned the Nile uh, River into blood. There was also the plague of, flo- of frogs that he sent upon the Egyptians. The plague of gnats. The plague of flies. The plague on the livestock. He killed all the livestock and the riches of Egypt. The plague of boils. The plague of hail. The plague of locusts. The plague of darkness. And of course the plague on the firstborn. Look, at that. Those are just ten amazing signs that God pr- showed to prove his power and to deliver them from the bondage of the Egyptians. Then God parts the Red Sea and destroys the Egyptians. Just completely destroys and wipes out their taskmasters. And one of the greatest miracles, I didn't put this in here, but one of the greatest miracles was not when God parted the Red Sea, but it was when the Red Sea came down and He made it impossible for them to go back to their bondage. He made it impossible. There's no way you're going back. The Red Sea is closed. The way you came out of here is not going to be the way you go back in there because you're not going back in there anymore. When Moses was about to, uh, to lead the children of Israel through the Red Sea, he said, the Egyptians you see here today, you shall see them never again. You'll never see them again. God had closed the door on them from going back to the Egyptians. But it continues. So that's what God did just to get them out. He did 11 different miracles and signs of wonders. Not, on t- not only that, but the Bible says he spoiled the Egyptians. That whenever the p- children of Israel left Egypt, they took all of their wealth. They took all of their gold, all of their jewelry. They took their what little livestock they had left. They took all their stuff with them. So they left their rich. They left they were slaves. Now they left their wealthy and free. Now look what happens. The complaints of Israel. After he had delivered Israel, 
Look at God kept doing more things, and no matter what God did for them, they just kept complaining. So the children of Israel complained at the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his army came to attack them. So that was number one. So after he did all that, the ten plagues, they started complaining, Oh God, you know, you should just let us stay in, in bondage, uh, Moses. And they started complaining right there. So after the Red Sea, God sends the angel of the Lord uh, a pillar of cloud and a pillar by fire of, um, by night to stop the Egyptians. I'm sorry, this is still before the Red Sea. So he's, he sends the angel of the Lord to bring a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night to stop the Egyptians in their tracks. God parts the Red Sea. We see in Exodus 14, verse 21. They complained against Moses at Merah when they couldn't find any good drinking water. So then they start complaining about that. So God's done all this stuff, and they start complaining. God, we don't have any water. They complained because they said they had plenty of food when they were in bondage and they were hungry. So here's the thing now. God provided them water. He turned the bitter water sweet when uh, Moses had them cut down a tree and put it into the water. He made the water sweet, so he gave them water. Then they complained and said, we're hungry. We don't have enough food, right? So God rains bread from the sky to give them food. They complained that they were thirsty, saying, have you brought us out here to die and we're ready to stone us, stone, uh, stone Moses. This is in Exodus chapter 17, 1, 4, after he'd already done all this other stuff. God made water come out of a, out of a rock to deal with their thirst, right? So, so God keeps meeting the need. They keep complaining. No matter what God does for them, it's never good enough. They complained about not having meat to eat, so God rained quail from the sky. God brings them to the promised land and shows them its blessings, and they weep all night complaining because there were giants in it. Do you understand here that because of their traumatization, no matter how many blessings God gave to them, they would not receive it, and they kept referring back to their trauma. Now I want to read this story here of when the children of Israel began to, they heard the news about the promised land. So now, God has rescued them from bondage. He's part of the Red Sea, brought them to the Red Sea, brought them to the wilderness, protected them from being attacked from multiple enemies. He has rained bread from the sky. He's turned bitter water sweet. He's brought water out of a rock to quench their thirst. He's caused meat to fall from the sky. He's in all these things. He finally brings them to the land of promise that they want to, to get into. And when they find out that there's going to be a challenge in obtaining that promise, look at their reaction here. Numbers chapter 14. So because of their fear, they couldn't enter the promised land. Actually, before I read this, this picture on here, I'm not sure if you see this. This picture that I have here on the screen is the picture of people from North Korea. This picture was taken roughly around 2011 when King Jum, I think, Il, passed away. He was the dictator over... North Korea. He died. And his son, King Jong-un, or Un, let's get their names right, is the current leader right now. But this is when they, when he died, okay? You have to understand, this guy was, was vicious. His regime was, was absolutely vicious. That, um, the people there were really just, they were in bondage. And that they didn't have any type of democratic f- freedom. They're constantly being brainwashed. And that if there's any dissension whatsoever, they could be interned in a concentration camp. They, they, it's, it's a, they have to register their computers as if it's a gun because they can't have access to the internet or fax machines or anything like that. I mean, they're living in a very difficult situation. And when this man, who's, who's pretty much enslaved his entire people, he died, the people wept bitterly as if he was like their dad, as if he was their best friend. Some of it you could say was staged, but people actually, from what I've, I've, I've consulted experts on this looking at articles, said that a lot of the weeping was genuine because they'd been so brainwashed that this guy was great, even though he was treating him like garbage, that when he died, they genuinely wept over him because they've been so conditioned to being in bondage. Now, I want you to read this story now about the children of Israel. They have now come to the promised land. They are right at the border of the land of promise. And look at their response here. So Numbers 14, verse 1, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses. So they find out, okay, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is flowing with milk and honey. And, oh, but there's giants that are there. I actually wanted to read, let me read Numbers 13 first to kind of get more context. I'll go back to Numbers 14. Numbers 13 verse 31 says, But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land, uh, though which we have gone to search it, is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw it saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, 
which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, Numbers 14, verse 1. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. They wept all night when they found that there were giants in the promised land. Now, you have to understand this. What had God done for them up until this point? All that stuff I read to you earlier, God had done all that stuff. So they just hear one bad report that there's giants in the land. And the, the Bible says they wept. They fell on the ground and cried as if someone had died. They wept that night and mourned and lamented. And immediately the Bible says in verse 2, And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness and wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, let us make a captain, let us return into Egypt. You see how messed up they are because of their trauma. After all the things that God has done for them, they are at their land of promise. And because of their trauma, they're so focused on their trauma, they're unable to receive the promises that, and the blessings that God has for them now. I want you to remember that if you're dealing with a trauma, something traumatic that's happened in your past, something that's been affecting you, uh, that is uh, really that you just, you can't seem to just get over. And it's every time that issue comes up, you immediately begin to complain. You immediately begin to lament. You immediately begin to bemoan and to groan. I want you to understand something here, that that type of attitude is keeping you from entering into your promise. One thing is doing this type of activity, focusing on their trauma, filled them with fear. It filled them with fear and it left them pretty much empty of faith to enter into their promised land. We're just like this picture here. No matter how much God does for us, because we've been traumatized, because we've experienced something that is horrendous, some tragedy, we are ungrateful and we do not receive the promises that God has for us now. So when it came to time to walk into the promised land, they didn't have the faith to do so. The children of Israel did not have the faith to do so. Hebrews 3 verse 16 says, For someone they had heard did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The children of Israel didn't have the faith to walk into their promise because they were never grateful for what God had done. Instead, they kept looking back at their previous enslavement. If we want to have faith for God's future promises, then we need to be grateful for the promises He has already fulfilled. For gratitude nullifies the effects of bondage. The way to get over trauma is gratitude. Is praise and thanksgiving. That's how you deal with scars and trauma. Is gratitude. Now I want to be very clear about this. I'm not saying to be grateful for the trauma. To, you need to be grateful that you're no longer in the trauma. Now here's the thing about traumas. Traumas all have triggers. What a scar does is it, it's a trigger. When you see that scar, you start to relive the trauma. You relive the pain. You relive the anxiety. You relive the abandonment, the hurt. And the isolation. And you relive it when you see that trigger. But we want to shift the trigger now. We want to use the same trigger, but shift it to something good. The way we do this is instead of when we see the trigger, we relive the, the trauma. Instead, we relive the deliverance. So when I look back at my traumatic experiences, instead of thinking about, Oh God, this was so horrible. Why did I go through this? Instead, I'm filled with gratitude. Oh, God, thank you that I'm no longer there and that you brought me out of this. The way to deal with trauma is gratitude. Now, that sounds counterintuitive because that's the last thing we want to do is to give thanks or show gratitude. No, we want to exalt, we want to magnify this trauma because it's so horrible and it's so painful. And we don't want to minimize it. We want others to know how bad it is. But the way that you get whole is that you have gratitude. 
Not gratitude for the trauma, but gratitude for the deliverance that you're not there anymore. Thank God I'm no longer in that traumatic experience. Thank God that he brought me out. And so what the children of Israel didn't do, they never thanked God for bringing them out. Instead, they always thought about what they were like in the trauma. And because of their lack of gratitude, they had no faith to enter into God's promises. They did not look at the track record of all the things that God had done to get them there. So that when they were right at the very border of the promise... They had no faith and they had to wander in the wilderness. Because of our lack of gratitude of looking at all the things that God has done, we have no faith for God to help us get through the current crisis. And instead we complain, we moan, we murmur, and we miss out on the things that God has for us. We're so focused on the past or missing out on the blessing that God has for us in the present and in the future. What this, I just explained to you is the David principle. The David principle. Let me just uh, read this scripture here in 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, verse 33. Goliath has, has stepped on the scene. The, uh, the nation of Israel and the Philistines have been in a, in a uh, kind of in a stalemate. They're in a standoff. And David comes on the scene and says, is there not a cause? Let me fight this giant. He is now presenting his case to King Saul about why he is qualified to fight the giant. Now look at this very closely. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17 verse 33. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took, and, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered him it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said moreover, now look what David says here in verse 37. The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the, the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go and the Lord be with thee. When facing Goliath, Saul told David that he couldn't defeat Goliath because he lacked the experience. He said, this man has been fighting all of his life, this giant. You, you're just a youth. You have no experience in warfare. How are you going to defeat this giant, this man of war? David countered that by recounting what God had done for him in the past. His faith in God to defeat Goliath was because of his memory and gratitude to God for past Deliverances, thankfulness or praise for what God has already done is a basis for faith. Without it, we are, our, without it, gi- our giants will convince us that we cannot receive God's promises or, or win the victory. So here's the thing. He said, you can't be this giant. And what David did is instead of relieving the trauma of a lion coming to attack him, or a bear coming to attack him, he said, instead says, no, God delivered me out of the lion and he delivered me out of the bear. And this giant is going to be no different. When you're facing a present crisis, rehearse the many times that God has brought you through. Remind yourself of the track record, the resume, the dossier that God has. If God brought you through this crisis, he can bring you through the future crises. His record is is sure. He's got a good, faithful, consistent record of delivering you through problems and bring you out of bondage. He is going to bring you through this next thing. But instead, what we do instead, we say, no, we can't do it because I've had this traumatic experience. I'm not qualified to enter into God's promises because of this horrible experience. This I can't do because I was raped or I was abused or I was abandoned or I was maligned and I was lied about and I was whatever. You name your trauma. Or because my loved one died and you're focusing on this one thing and you're not grateful how God brought you through that. And because that you don't have faith to deal with the present crisis. Gratitude is the key to dealing with traumas. We're just like this picture. God has brought us a wonderful meal of blessing. And we're saying, "Eh, take this back. This is not what I ordered. Right? And I'm going to explain why that is in just a minute. Why we do that with God. Because as we saw in the, the narrative of the children of Israel. No matter what dish God served to the children of Israel. Whether it was manna from the sky or quail or water from a rock. No matter what dish God gave them, no, take this back. I don't want this. It was better in my trauma. Right? We do that to God because we're unthankful. Unthankful. The Bible prophesies about a generation of people who are ungrateful. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, 
They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. We fail to recognize God's intervention, his hand on our lives through the traumatic experiences, the tragedies, and the traumas that we deal with. And instead we complain and murmur. And because we don't acknowledge God as being truly God, the Bible says that our our heart, our imagination is darkened and blind. That we can't even see God's hand working in our lives. We can't see how it was God who brought us through this. We can't see the fact that it is God who is sustaining us and even keeping us alive right now. Because we are so blind by a lack of gratitude and unthankfulness. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. This is how you do this, how you do this denial of the power. There are a lot of people who've been in church all their lives, but they're denying the power of God in them because they lack gratitude. As we saw in Romans chapter 1, their, their imaginations have been darkened. They come to church bitter and angry with a chip on their shoulder because this, this situation, this trauma has not been properly dealt with. And because they're unthankful and they don't have a grateful spirit, they are denying God's efficacy. They're denying God's power really truly intervening in their life and they're able to walk in all of God's promises. Why are we ungrateful? Why was it that no matter what God did, that the children of Israel complained and murmured? Why is it that despite the blessings that God has given us, or God continues to give us, we continue to murmur and to complain and refer back to the trauma? The trauma has now become the reference point. It's the point of reference from which we judge all things. It's the lens by which we perceive every experience is now through this traumatic experience. And because that, we now see every blessing as God that God gives us as a curse. Why is that? I'm going to try and answer that with just three basic things. Number one, our traumas often blind us from the blessings we have now. As I've stated earlier. That's all we see is the trauma. All we see is this event, this experience. And it's, it colors the lenses by which we interpret information. That's number one. Number two is this. Trauma or losses gives us a sense of entitlement because we feel we deserve a specific kind of compensation. Because I have been damaged, because I have suffered loss, I deserve compensation. My losses are payment for the compensation, a specific kind of compensation that I believe I deserve. So I'm entitled to certain types of behaviors and certain types of relationships and certain types of choices because I have suffered this loss. I'm entitled to some sort of compensation. I deserve this thing because I've suffered, because I am a victim of this experience, I deserve a specific kind of compensation. That's exactly what the children of Israel had. Because I was victimized, because I was in bondage, I deserve a specific type of meal, God. I don't want this manna. I don't want this water from a rock. I want whatever the Egyptians were giving me. I deserve a specific type of compensation. It's in the spirit of entitlement. Number three, we become accustomed to the trauma where it becomes a crutch to justify our entitlements. Because I am, I've been victimized and I deserve this, we become used to that as being an excuse as to why we should not progress. Because moving forward from that is scary. It's frightening to not have that as a crutch. We become so accustomed to being in bondage. This is the children of Israel were. They became so used to being enslaved that being free was scary. And this happens all the time. People who've been incarcerated for a particular length of time, they get out of prison And because they've gotten so used to the system of the prison system, they will sometimes commit a crime on purpose just to go back because that's what they're used to and that's what they're comfortable with. A lot of us, I'm not saying all of us, but a lot of us will use our traumas as a crutch as an excuse to excuse uh, excuse why I'm making the choices I'm making, why I deserve to behave this way. 
It may be an explanation, but it's not an excuse or a justification. We, we become accustomed to these traumas where it becomes a clutch, a crutch to justify our entitlements. And because of that, we become ungrateful to God. No matter what, no God, I can't, I can't pray for them because you never helped me through, you weren't there when I went through this trauma, right? I can't love my neighbor as myself or I can't, you name whatever the Bible tells us to do. And we'll use our trauma as an excuse as to why we're, we, we, we're, we basically get a, uh, a doctor's note to get out of gym class, so to speak. So we don't exercise our faith and do what God tells us. We get a, we get a, an excuse so that we don't have to fully live the Christian life and why we can, we can be bitter and why we can be miserable and why we can behave a certain way. It's a crutch because we feel entitled to a certain type of compensation and because of that we are ungrateful. Ungrateful. Now let's look at an example of someone who was traumatized but didn't let the trauma get to him because of his gratitude. Look at Joseph. Look at Joseph. So we want to adapt the, the Joseph attitude. So Genesis 41, 49 says, And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea, very much until he left numbering. For it was without number. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asenath, the daughter of Pot- Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. Now that is a profound statement. Do you understand what Joseph went through? Right? Joseph had been traumatized. Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers, his own family, was sold into slavery. That in of itself would give me an attitude. All right? My whole family bounced on me, sold me out. I mean, not, we talk about being sold out by your family, like being betrayed. I mean, my own brother sold me into slavery into a foreign land. That's number one. On top of that, as I'm being a slave, doing being the best kind of slave I am, I am falsely accused of a crime I didn't commit and now thrown into prison. So you want to talk about having an attitude? He's done nothing wrong. He's been enslaved by his own family, betrayed by, by those he loves most. He's lost his father. He's lost his home. He's lost everything. He's been lied. His reputation has been slandered. But if you know the story of Potiphar's uh, wife, who lied and said that, she, that um, he had raped her. I mean, we get angry we've been falsely accused of something. Can you imagine being slapped with a rape charge? You didn't do it. After you'd already been falsely in prison or enslaved. <laughs> On top of that, he is now spending years in a prison. He helps out somebody. If you know the story about the baker and also the... The butler, or what's called the the wine uh, taster, the cupbearer, he helps the uh, the wine bearer, the cupbearer, uh, out by interpreting his dream and says, "Hey, bro, when you get out of here, can you help me out?" And the dude does not help him out for two years. For two years, Joseph, after doing this guy a favor, and the guy gets out, the dude forgets about him, and he has to rot in a prison. For an additional two years for a crime he didn't commit after he'd already been sold into slavery. Do you understand how crazy that is? So you want to talk about someone who we would think has a right to be bitter and to complain. He has been traumatized. He has been isolated. Completely isolated. But despite this, he didn't go back to get vengeance and all who, be, who uh, wronged him because he was so grateful for his present blessing. I want you to understand something, okay? He went from being a prisoner to becoming the vice president. He had the power to get back at everyone who had wronged him. Everybody. He could have got back at Potiphar. He could have got back at Potiphar's wife. He could have easily gone back home anytime he wanted to to get back at his brothers or get his dad back. But he didn't. He didn't go back. He didn't seek vengeance on any of them. And look what he says. When he had, he got married and he had his firstborn son. Look at it again, the verse uh, 51 says, And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. He was so grateful from having been a slave and being a prisoner to now becoming the vice president, he forgot all about his traumas. Think about that for a minute. He's like, God has been so good to me. Why do I even want to rehearse all the mess I went through before? I'm focusing on what God is doing for me now. He could have easily gone back and got Potiphar. Easily gone back and got Potiphar's wife for uh, slandering him with a rape charge. 
Could have got back. I mean, he could have got revenge on all these folks, on his brothers easily, if he wanted to. He could have gone back to his, his family at any time. But he never went, he never looked back and says, I got my wife, I got my kids, I'm doing good now. I don't care about my past. I'm so grateful for what I have now, I'm just going to move on with my life. Do you see that? That's the attitude we need to have. We need to have an attitude of gratitude. Because it's thanksgiving that gives us the ability to overcome our traumas. Now, let's compare that with another biblical character who was also traumatized. Went through some horrible things. And I want you to look at his attitude, just some things that he, uh, he was thinking during his traumatization. Let's look at Job. The Job trauma. So now, Job, now, I want you to, let's, let's kind of rehearse the story really quickly, just to kind of give us a refresher. So, Job was a righteous man. Job was wealthy. He was the wealthiest man in the land. He had all this wealth and animals and livestock and land, had a beautiful wife, had ten children, had everything. And in one day, he lost it all. Lost his wife, I mean, not his wife, lost his, um, children, lost all of his wealth, and he even lost his health. And he's wallowing in a, in a an ash heap. His own friends have betrayed him and are falsely accusing him of committing a sin he never committed. He is just in anguish. His own wife is, is coming against him saying, why don't you curse God and die? So he's in this horrible situation. Now as he's going through this situation, he just says, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. God, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. He just accepts that this is of God and he suffers through it. But he's a little bit upset about it. And understandably so. Now one thing I noticed during this entire situation is that Job, he he wants to get an audience with God because he wants to know why did this happen to me? I have been righteous. I've done what God has said. I've been a good a good person. I've served God faithfully. Why is all of this wrong being done unto me? Why are my children dead? Why did I have to bury all ten of my children in one day? Why did I lose all of my wealth? Why is my own wife accusing me? Why is my own best friend saying I've done something wrong? Why am I sick? I want to understand the reason why this injustice happened. And that is the question that many of us who have been traumatized ask. God, why? Why did this happen? Why was I hurt in this way? Why did this person do this to me? Why did I have to experience this trauma? And during the traumatization period, Job, he asked, he was like, I want to have an audience with God. I want to talk to God and I got some questions for God. And I want you to look at the question that, God, that Job wants to ask. So Job never asked God to heal him, to restore his wealth or his children. Instead, he asked for the following. That he'd never been born. And why didn't he die in the womb? Job 3 verse 3. Let the day perish. This is Job speaking. Let the day perish wherein I was born. And the night in which it was said, there is a man child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. Job 3.11. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give it the ghost when I came out of the belly? Those are the types of questions he wanted to ask God. Why? Why didn't you just let me die, God? This is so horrible. Why didn't you let me die in the womb? Why? Why? I wish I'd never been born. Those are the types of questions he asked God. He didn't ask God to fix anything. Don't you think it's kind of odd? Not one time. You read the book of Job. He never asked, hey, God, could you eat my kids back? Or God, could you heal me of this disease? Or could you restore my... He never once asked that. Instead, he asked about why he couldn't just die. Why can't my suffering just end? Or why did this happen to me? The next question he asked. Job 23, verse 3. Oh, that I, I knew where I might find it. Where is God? Where I'm going through all this trauma. Where are you, God? I am suffering. I can't sleep at night. My friends have turned against me. I've lost my loved ones. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my health. My career is in shambles. My wife has turned against me. Where are you in the middle of all of this suffering? Where are you, God? All that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would present my case and say, God, this is bogus. You're wrong for this. I would argue my case to say that I am being wrong. This is an injustice. I would know the words which, which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me upon it. He never asked, God, could you fix this? He just wanted to know why he was being traumatized. And that's very telling because Job asked to have an audience with God so that he could argue for his innocence and righteousness he was so concerned with the reasons why he was being wronged that he never asked God to make it right. 
I want you to let that settle in your brain for a minute. We are so in such a self-righteous complex. I'm being wronged. I'm the victim. And I deserve justice. And God, I want, I'm going to prove, I'm going to present my case. I'm going to get Johnny Conquered. He's going to be my defender. He's going to present the case to show you why I've been wronged. I deserve compensation. Right? Call J.G. Wetworth. I want my money and I want it now. <laughs> we want to have an argument. We want to have a case. A trial before God. Say, God, this is bogus. I'm being done wrong. You need to compensate me. Actually, he didn't even ask for compensation. He just wanted to know why he's being wrong. He was so concerned about his sense of justice, he was not concerned at all about a, about a solution to resolve the trauma. And so many times we do that. We're so focused on the why, we don't ask God to just to fix us, to deal with the trauma, because we want some sort of justification or some sort of explanation as to why this thing happened. Focusing on the why is not going to give you necessarily a resolution. And I know we want the answer to the whys. We want to know why did this happen. I want an explanation to try and give me some closure on this. And again, when I say this, I am not at all minimizing your suffering or the traumas that you've been through. But I'm also trying to, under, trying to get you to understand that may not give you the resolution that you want. What we find here in this story is that God was trying to tell Job, even if I tried to explain it to you, you wouldn't understand it. And there are so many things that are beyond your comprehension to understand. You just need to trust me. And that's not the answer we want to hear. Now, one thing I will say is this. And this isn't in my lesson, but I feel led to say this. Um, is that what, what equalizes this whole suffering, this whole traumatization thing, is that God was traumatized. And God was traumatized to such a degree that he himself also asked why. You know, oftentimes when we ask why, we're asking the wrong why question. Because we ask God, why me? Why me? Why did I have to suffer this? Why did I have to lose this loved one? Why did I have to go through this pain? You're asking the wrong why question. You need to ask, why him? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why would the perfect, perfectly just, loving God have to suffer the absolute worst death you could possibly imagine for sinners? And when Jesus was on the cross being traumatized, he asked the question, why? My God, my God, why? Hast thou forsaken me? Because the traumatization he was in was so intense. And the thing is what he was experiencing was the sin that was all being put upon himself. He understands why you're suffering. The difference between Jesus and us is Jesus was innocent. Jesus is perfect and righteous. I'm not innocent. <laughs> now that does not mean that you, you having a sin or whatever caused your trauma. Please understand, I'm not saying that you caused your trauma. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not victim blaming or victim shaming. But what I'm trying to say is that we're not perfect and we deserve damnation in hell, if not because of, of, uh, something that may have caused a trauma, but of any particular, any sin that we commit, or because of our nature that I talked about on Sunday. And really, we deserve death and damnation. But yet, Jesus died for us. We're asking the wrong why question, not why us. But why him? And we need to focus on the fact that even despite all the sin and mess that we do, God still loves us and carries us through. That was the answer God gave me when I was going through a traumatic situation. I lost a very close friend of mine. He's only 19 years old. Went out on, uh, on a pier on Lake Michigan with his youth group. Fell off the pier and drowned. Was a good young man. Only 19 years old. Was a drummer for his local church. Wasn't out in the streets. Wasn't gang banging. Was a clean young man. And he died tragically in Lake Michigan. And I was very upset and distraught about it. And I was crying out, I was asking this question, God, why? I need an explanation for this because this doesn't make any sense to me. And that was the answer that the Lord gave me. You're asking the wrong why question. You need to focus on my love and focus on the fact that I'm going to bring you through this. No, that was not the answer I wanted. But that was the answer that the Lord gave me. And it's helped me through this. And again, as I said before, so many times that we're focusing on the why. We're not focusing on the answer to the, the ultimate question of the trauma itself, of getting an answer, getting a resolution. With all that being said, let's now go back to the story I started off with, with the lepers in Samaria. Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19. And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. 
And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. So as they're walking, as they're walking away from Jesus, they, the healing manifests. It becomes visible. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, and I have the Greek word there, eomai, turned back. And he, with a loud voice, glorified God. And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God. Say this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the Greek word there is sozo. Now I'm going to give some definitions about these two Greek words to show us there's something very interesting going on here in this text. So the first one, iomohai, which means one way of healing, instantaneous or miraculous. It can mean to heal, to cure, heal, to make whole. This deals with a particular part of a person. So when we use this typical word about healing, we're talking about a specific part of the person. Uh, in this case, it was the leprosy, all right? Which means, in this case, the disease was no longer progressing. Right? The, the, the leprosy was no longer eating away the skin. They saw that they were healed. They could see that the skin was, was, was starting to recover. So that's the first one. It said all ten of them got healed, but only one of them got whole. Only one of them got whole. The word for whole there is, is sozo, which means salvation. To save, to make or to be whole. To restore spirit, soul, and body. It deals with the complete restoration of the entire person. Because here's the thing you have to understand. When you were a leper, the disease didn't just affect your body. It affected everything. Especially psychologically and emotionally. Back in that time, they didn't have a cure for leprosy. So they pretty much quarantined people. If you were a leper, you had to isolate yourself. You had to live in a village with other lepers. You had to surround yourself with other people who were being traumatized. And if you ventured out into the world where, where there were normal people who didn't have your trauma or didn't have your ailment... You had to cry out, unclean, unclean, and let everyone know that you were a diseased, sick person and to stay away from you. You could not physically come in contact with anyone or touch anyone. People would run away from you because you had a disease that did not have a cure and could potentially be contagious. Can you imagine the psychological damage of, if you, you found out you're a leper, you now had to isolate from your family. You had to live in a village, in a, in a quarantine location with other people with your same malady. And any time you came out of that village or, came, or walked out in public, you had to tell everyone that you were unclean. You had to tell everyone about your trauma. Think about that, how, how traumatizing that was. How if anyone came near, they'd look, oh, he's a leper, get away from me. How that would damage someone psychologically and emotionally. Right? Now look what Jesus says here. Look what happened in the story. Nine of them got healed, which means their physical ailment got healed. But only this Samaritan got whole. Because when Jesus said, thy faith had made thee whole, he wasn't just talking about the physical, he was talking about the total man, spirit, soul, and body. The other thing is also that one interpretation is that yes, that the whenever you get healed of leprosy, it just means that the, the disease is no longer progressing. It doesn't mean that the flesh comes back necessarily. It just means that there's a sign, there's a, there's a sign that, that the priest would look for in order for the skin to be, to, to, to show that the, the disease has stopped basically. So it doesn't necessarily mean that their flesh came back. It just means that the disease has stopped progressing. This guy, however, not only got all of his skin back, he got the, the healing from all the rejection, all the isolation. Jesus said, thy faith made thee whole. Now the thing is, the only way he got that uh, becoming whole was through gratitude. He was the one guy that turned around and went back to Jesus to show gratitude. And through his gratitude, he got whole. Now let's really break down this story. There's some very interesting things happening here. The leper story analyzed. So Jesus was just entering the outskirts of the village and not by any specific place. Let's look at the story again. Let's go back here. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria in Galilee. And as he ent entered into a certain village, there met him ten men which were lepers. So he wasn't at a specific like landmark or at a house. He was just walking in the outskirts of town, Right? He's on the outskirts of the town. So Jesus was entering the outskirts of the village and not by any specific place. So for the leper to find him could mean two things. Either Jesus stayed where he was, 
when he gave the command to go to the priest or that had not gone out of eyesight of Jesus when they were healed. So that, I want to just think about that. Think about that for a minute. For, for the leper to find Jesus, he would have had not to gone so far out of eyesight so he could still find him. Because Jesus was not in a specific location. He just kind of just walked walking, right? So he would have only had to walk so far to stay within eyesight of Jesus in order for him to find him. My computer's doing a very interesting thing right now. I just noticed it's, uh, it's um, kind of listening to what I'm saying here. Not sure why it's doing that. It's kind of interesting. Let me just... Uh... <laughs> I'm being subtitled. I've never seen that happen before. The devil is a lie. Get out of here. Hold up a second. Let me stop this thing. I'm not sure why it's doing that. Let's, there we go. That's very interesting. Okay. Hello, testing. All right, okay, we're back. We're, we're online. No more subtitles. Okay. <laughs> so now here, here's the thing, okay? So Jesus gave both all of them a command uh, to go and find the high priest. And also, as I was saying before, the only way that he could find meant two things. That either Jesus stayed where he was when he gave the command to go to the priest, or that they had not gone out of eyesight of Jesus when they were healed. So that means Jesus could see them when they got healed. He's like, I, I see they got it. Right? And also this means that they could see Jesus. Which means they saw Jesus had done the miracle, but kept on walking. And didn't show any gratitude. Only this one guy turned around to see him. What, now what can we extrapolate from that? Man, today, this thing is just having a day. Not sure what's going on here. Okay, here we go. <laughs> we should never go too far or too long from the point of our deliverance without thanking Jesus for being delivered. The man, the leper, did not get so far out of Jesus' eyesight that he couldn't get back to Jesus to thank him. You should never get too far. Never go too far from when God rescued you to give him thanks, to give him praise for delivering you out of that trauma. This means that the other nine lepers either didn't realize that they were healed or were so ungrateful that they didn't care to go back to thank Jesus even though he was right within eyesight of them. Ungrateful. Just like the children of Israel. Ungrateful, unthankful, just kept walking, didn't, didn't bother to go back to thank Jesus. The one leper who came back to thank Jesus was a Samaritan. He was a foreigner and a stranger. The person who showed the most gratitude was a person who had no entitlement to God's favor. Remember, Jesus had come for the lost sheep of Israel. He didn't come for the Samaritan. He didn't come for anyone else, primarily. He came to give miracles only to the Jews, as we saw with the miracle of the Syrophoenician woman who said, who had a, uh, a daughter who was possessed of the devil. And what Jesus said, it's not right to give the children's bread unto the dogs, right? I'm only here for the lost sheep of Israel. The Samaritan had no covenant with God, had no right to get anything from God. And so when he realized, I didn't deserve this at all, and God gave this to me anyway, he was filled with the most gratitude. Because he had the least uh, uh, attitude of entitlement, he had the most gratitude which led him to be whole. Do you see that? It was the foreigner. The other Jews, they didn't care, whatever. I deserve this. I deserve to be blessed. So they don't thank God for God doing the things that he's doing. Jesus told the lepers to go and show themselves to the priest, which was commanded in the law. The leper didn't go to the Levitical priest, but went to the true high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In order, whenever you were a leper, and if you got cured, if your leprosy had stopped, you were supposed to show yourself to the priest. The priest would certify the fact that you're no longer a leper and give you a certificate that you could go and reintegrate into society. But the leper did not go to the Levitical priesthood. He went to the true high priest, Jesus Christ, after the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus certified the fact that you are not only healed, but I make you whole from your trauma. All ten lepers were healed, but only one of them was made whole. Thanking God will cause you to be whole and remove the damage of the bondage. That's it in a nutshell. Is gratitude. Oh my goodness, if we would catch, catch a hold of this, you would get free from the traumas that you're carrying. You would get free from all the hurts, the effects. If you just thank God, I'm no longer there. When you had those triggers, those, those sounds, those smells, those sensations, or maybe a song that was played that make, that brings you back to this point, a marker, an, a house, or a location that triggers you and tries to get you to relive the trauma and said, turn that into a praise. Say, thank God I'm not there anymore. Thank God he brought me out of this situation. I'm no longer in this place of bondage anymore. 
And I close with this last story. Luke 7, verse 36 verse through 42. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet weeping. Notice that. She did not come before him. We always, whenever we, we hear this story about the one with the alabaster box, we always picture being in front of him washing his feet. The Bible didn't say that. She came behind him because she felt so unworthy to even be in front of his feet kneeling. Just in her attitude here, says that then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts, Simon. He said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to, to, uh, to two people, 500 pieces of silvery, to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my, from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I want you to understand this. Back in these days, that was the custom. When you entered into someone's house, it was the custom, it was the tradition to uh, offer water to have their feet uh, washed and to refresh them. The washing of feet was kind of a, was a courtesy and it was something that was kind of necessary because living in those days, um, you're walking and, you know, wearing sandals through these dusty roads and there was animals and beasts of burden that would poop all over the place. You might actually step in something, you know. So your feet could be pretty nasty. And washing of the feet was usually the job of a slave. And this woman, she comes to Jesus doing the job of a slave. Who knows what Jesus had stepped in before he got in there. <laughs> and she comes washing his feet. And this man, Simon, who was supposed to be the host, didn't even offer that to Jesus, which was a, a typical courtesy to a guest. Verse 44, then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. This woman, because she had a lot of trauma, let's just put it that way, a lot of sin, and God had dealt with that trauma, she had had a lot of gratitude. But because apparently Simon hadn't thought he didn't have a lot of sin when really he did, he acted entitled and didn't show Jesus the proper respect. And because of this, his sins didn't get forgiven. Jesus only offered forgiveness to the woman, not to him. Why? Because he didn't show any gratitude. Why would God want to bless us with anything else? We're not grateful for the stuff that he's already given us. Those of you who are parents, you guys understand this, right? <laughs> your daughter, your son, because daddy or mommy, I really want this new thing. And you didn't even thank me for the last thing I gave you. The, th the toy I just bought you last week, it's already like you've left it on the floor. Don't even put it away after asking, right? You've already broken it. Even though I told you not to do this and this with it, right? You, 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 am I the only one who's ever gone through that? No. <laughs> right? Why would God want to give us more when we don't show him thankfulness for what he's already given us? We need to show gratitude unto God. First John 4, 17-19 Here is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are, are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. We have to understand that our actions, our, our praise, our thanksgiving is because of what God has done. Really, whenever we have someone who is bitter, who has been traumatized, it's because at some juncture... They have not recognized what God has done. Maybe they know what God has done, but maybe they suffer from amnesia. And they just forget what God has done. Um, there's an old hymn that we used to sing about, count your blessings. One by one. 
right? Name all of them which God has done. Count your blessings and you'll, you'll begin to see a little bit clearer as to what God has done. And that gratitude, the spirit of gratitude will liberate you from the spirit of victimization and traumatization. Let's stand. I'm done. I got to quit. Oh, Sister Johnny, you had a comment or question on this? I'll come down to you. wanted to make a comment. I think it's in the book of James where it says that uh, we ask God but we don't receive because we ask with the wrong motive and with the wrong intention. And if we ask that way, then we're never going to receive because you have the wrong motive and the wrong intention as to why you're asking God something. Exactly. We ask for the wrong motive. We don't have a spirit of gratitude. The Bible tells us in Psalm 100 verse 4 to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. We enter into God's presence. We enter into God's promises through thanksgiving. That's the door. That's the gate. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, right? Uh, Philippians 4, 6, it says, be careful or be anxious for nothing. But in all things, with prayer and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep and guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We've got to have a spirit of gratitude. We just had thanksgiving. Let's not lose that spirit. And maybe you've, you've, you're dealing with a trauma and you're dealing with triggers. You're dealing with, with past hurts. And again, I'm not minimizing those traumas. Being in slavery of the children of Israel for hundreds of years was a horrible experience. It's not something that's small. It is big, but our God is bigger. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger than any trauma. His blood is greater than any sin, any pain, or any hurt. And the way that you will apply the salve, apply the medicine of God's spirit to your heart, to that wound, and to remove the scars, the evidence of those things, is by having a spirit of gratitude. When you do that, you're going to find freedom and liberty. Let us pray today. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We bless you. We worship you. We thank you so much. We thank you, Lord, that you brought us out of the miry clay. Oh God, you set our feet on a rock to stay. You put a song in our heart, oh God. Hallelujah. You freed us. You liberated us. Liberated us. You set us free. And Lord Jesus, we want you, Lord God, that you turn our mourning into dancing. That we put off the garments of heaviness and put on the garments of praise. That whenever we think about our past, that we would not relive the trauma, but instead we would relive the deliverance and experience a praise explosion for all that you have done. Help us not to forget about you, to forget what you have done in our lives. We bless you, we worship you, we exalt you, we extol you, O God. We speak your blessing upon this congregation that we'd have a spirit of gratitude. When we're going through our week, O God, let us find reasons to praise you because they are many. They are numerous, O God. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. They are new every morning. God, help us to never forget what you've done for us. We love you, we bless you and worship you. And in Jesus' name, let the church living God say, Amen. God bless you. Have a grateful heart today.